We are going to finish the book of Nehemiah this morning. You excited? Yeah. Wow. After this will be the 18th sermon on the book of Nehemiah. I counted. Um, I, I hope that it's been beneficial to you. Thank you for hanging in there through and persevering through this. I believe that God honors it when we approach his word this way. And I hope that it's been as beneficial for you as it has been for me. Um, I have learned so much. The Lord and the Holy Spirit have taught me so many things just through my personal study, through this book, preparing to to lead you. And I hope that the Holy Spirit has done the same thing in your life. Um, And so we are going to end it today. But I want to ask you to consider, have you ever uh, had a book uh, some of you are readers. I'm not a novel reader. I, I, I just, I, I don't have the attention span. I don't have the patience to really work my way th- through a novel. I've started very many, finished very few. Um, but have you ever maybe read a book or started to read a book or watch a movie and you have expectations for how it's going to be and you expect how you expect it to end and then when you get to the end, You're thoroughly disappointed. Uh, This is not what I thought was going to happen, and it almost makes you regret having spent time reading to get to the end. I know I've watched movies that way before. There's been a couple of movies in my life, not many, but a couple where I've literally spoken out loud in the theater and said, you've got to be kidding me at the end of the movie because it was so bad, Uh, such a terrible ending. And um, last week, we were in chapter 12, and we saw the people dedicate the wall. They were led by the Levites and the priests. It's a picture of the entire nation worshiping and celebrating the faithfulness of God, and, and their worship was so vast that it reached far beyond the city walls, and people in regions miles away heard it. They were praising God over every part of the city. It was just this beautiful picture in chapter 12, and that would have been a great way to end the book of Nehemiah, but there's a chapter 13, and I hate to tell you, but the end of chapter 13 is not as good as chapter 12, and those of you that have already read or studied Nehemiah, and and, or maybe you've been reading ahead of me, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you maybe that have just been riding along with us, today you may experience a little bit of disappointment because it doesn't end the way we would want it to end. Nehemiah, by the end of chapter 12, has put a system of provision in place for the priest and the Levites. Do you remember that that's the tribe who is responsible for leading the people in worship, for taking care of the temple? They are the daily servants, the ones who do all of the things that are in regard to the temple and worship. And, and Nehemiah has set up a system where they are provided for in obedience to the, the law that God had established with Moses, said, this is the way I want you to, to operate and provide for them. And so Nehemiah has reestablished that. Everything is set. People were being faithful in their giving to the storehouse, and, they, and, and the Levites and the priests could continue to do their full-time service and ministry in the temple because the people were obeying the law of God, in their provision for them as they serve. But there's a time jump between chapter 12 
in chapter 13. Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem, and he returns to Artaxerxes sometime between chapter 12 and chapter 13 because you remember at the very beginning when he went to Artaxerxes and said, please give me permission to go back to my homeland. The Lord has laid it on my heart to go rebuild the wall of my, my home city. And he promised then, I will only be gone for a temporary time, and when I'm finished, when I've accomplished what I've gone to do, I will come back and continue to serve you. And so Artaxerxes gives him permission. So this is the time Nehemiah follows through with that promise because it seems now at this point that all he has come to Jerusalem to do has been done. He's not only rebuilt the wall, he's reestablished worship in the temple. He set up the system, and, and the people are obeying it. They're, they're ready to begin operating on their own. And, and he feels like this is a, a way, I've accomplished what God has called me to do. It's time to go back to Artaxerxes. So he does. But in chapter 13, he comes back. So there's a few years he leaves the people, and then he, he decides for whatever reason to come back to Jerusalem years later to see what the state of things are. And in chapter 13, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but I want to I narrate you through what's in the chapter, and we're going to look at some key verses, but there are three steps backwards that the people take. There, there are three specific things that he talks about that he finds when he comes back three steps backwards. Now, we all know what that's like, right? We all know what it's like to feel like we've made progressions, we've gotten better, we've moved forward, but then for whatever reason, we, we will often take steps backwards. And so I want to tell you about what these steps backwards were, what they meant for them, what they mean for us, and then we're going to wrap up this whole story and say, how does this ending, as weird and as painful as it is to read, what does that say to us about the whole story? So, so chapter 13 begins, and Nehemiah, he again, he asked permissions to go back to Jerusalem he was in Jerusalem. All that we've read so far has taken place over the course of about 12 years. He's gone back to Jerusalem. He's done the preparation, done everything. So he's been there for 12 years now. After the wall's built, he remained, got everything in place. So it's after 12 years that he goes back to Artaxerxes. His return back to Jerusalem could have been anywhere around 10 years. Some scholars say a little bit less. Some say even a little bit more. So for almost as much time as he spent initially reforming, all that we've read so far is about the same amount of time that he was gone when he said, okay, I've done it, we've got it set, I'm going to go back. So after about 10 years, he comes back. And so he finds three corrections um, that need to be made to the people's obedience because what he finds when he comes back after 10 years or so, he finds out that the people have fallen right back in to their disobedience. They've fallen right back into doing some of the same stuff they were doing before he even got there. And so there's three specific things. The first one is neglecting the house of God. This is number one. I'm going to give them to you, one, two, and three. And then I'm going to summarize them for you, show them to you, and then we're going to look at some key verses instead of reading the entire chapter together for time's sake. So the first thing he does, he, Nehemiah comes back, and one of the first things he finds is that one of the priests named Eliashib is in a relationship 
or a partnership with Tobiah. Now, you remember Tobiah, he was one of the thorns, uh, he was one of the enemies of Nehemiah, him and Sanballat. So Tobiah somehow has, has gotten into cahoots with Eliashib, who was one of the priests, and Eliashib has allowed Tobiah to come into the house of God and set up almost residence in the temple in the place of where all of the storing was supposed to be taking place for the Levites and the priests. You remember God told the people the way the Levites and the priests will be cared for is by your gifts, your contributions. And so there was a designated place in the temple where those offerings, those contributions from the people for the Levites was stored. Eliashib has allowed Tobiah to come in and take over that space. This is, this is what he finds. Look in verses 7 and 8 in chapter 13. Nehemiah says, Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. You remember, Tobiah's not even a Jew. And so for him to be coming in and taking up residence in the temple, and he's, he's filling in the place that God has established, this is supposed to be the storehouse for the offerings. And Eliashib has let Tobiah take it over. So Nehemiah comes back, and, it, and he says in verse 8, I was greatly displeased. That's probably an understatement. Because he literally goes in and cleans out. And when I say cleans out, he literally cleans out. He goes into that space, takes everything that belongs to Tobiah, and tosses it. Very similar to what we see Jesus do in the New Testament. And you know that, you know that picture of Jesus coming into the temple. There's merchants, there's money changers that are set up, and Jesus literally turns over their tables and destroys their stuff. And he says, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. And so Nehemiah has a very similar response, this righteous anger, and he responds forcefully. And you say, well, why is it such a big deal? Why is he responding with such urgency here? Because you see, since Tobiah was taking up that space, there was not a place to store the offerings. So if there was not a place to store the offerings, that means the offerings weren't even really being received. And if no offerings were being received, then the Levites and the priests weren't being taken care of the way they needed to be for them to fulfill their full-time duties in the temple. And so since they weren't being cared for, they had to leave and go back out into the fields and work. They had to make a living. But they had to make a living outside the temple. And so now you see that the house of God is being neglected because the ones that are supposed to be there serving there on a daily basis can't be because the people aren't caring for them, so they're forced to go outside the temple to work and make a living. Now nobody is taking care of the house of God. It's being neglected again. And so Jeremiah in this chapter, he, he orders, once he clears all of Tobiah's stuff out, like literally kicks him out, he says we need to come back in here and restore and cleanse, ceremonially cleanse this area, and you say, well, why would he do that? Because this place that was set aside as holy, that was supposed to be for the storing of the offering, now had become a symbol of disobedience because this is not what it had been used for. Look at verse 11 in chapter 13. Nehemiah responds again, Therefore I rebuked 
the officials asking, why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and singers together and stationed them at their post. So Nehemiah kicks out Tobiah. He, he scolds the leadership and says, why are you allowing this to happen? He brings the Levites, the singers, and the back in, sets them up at their post, and he reestablishes this offering. So he fixes it. Guys, y'all know what that's like, especially those of us as men. When we come in, we see something that's messed up. We want to fix it, right? This is Nehemiah's thing. He comes back in, and he's like, this is all messed up. We're going to take care of this right now. And so he takes care of it, and he takes care of it quickly and forcefully. And then I want you to notice in verse 14, there's a prayer. And this is what it says in verse 14. He says to God, remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Just look at that prayer there, and I want you to take note of it because we're going to see something as we continue through the chapter. So the first thing was neglecting the house of God. The second step backwards that he saw was normalizing what is holy. First, they've neglected the house of God. Now he sees that there's a normalization of what's holy. And what this means is the people began to break the commandment to observe the Sabbath. You remember, we've all, he's already addressed that. And, and that was part of the command that the people read when they publicly had Ezra read the law. They said, wow, this is what the Lord desires the Sabbath to be, and we've neglected it, and we've dishonored the Sabbath. But now in Nehemiah's absence, he's come back, and they're doing the very same thing over again. The Sabbath was set aside for the people to rest and for the people to worship the Lord. And that Sabbath day was meant for rest, not for work, not only to, to match the pattern of creation in God himself, in the example that he set, but also it, it was people, the people expressing to God that, Lord, we trust you. We trust you that we can honor the Sabbath, not work, and that you are still going to provide for us because we're honoring your word. So what began to happen is their, their trust, their distrust began to well up. And you begin to worry, and what, do you, what begins to happen when they begin to worry about if they have enough? Or we're not real sure if God's going to provide for us, so I need to work a little extra. So I'm going to take that Sabbath day. Uh, I can't just sit around and do nothing. I've got work to do. And so they begin to do that. They start working during that week. They start storing up food. They, they allow merchants into the city walls and they're buying and selling and trading on the Sabbath, and what they're doing is taking what God has established as a holy day, and they're normalizing it and making it look like every other day of the week. God says, you, can, you, can, you should work, you should take care of your business, you should do all those things on all these other days, but not on the Sabbath because it's holy. It's set aside for a specific purpose. If you remember, this is part of the disobedience that got them in the shape they were in, and now they've gone right back to doing the very same thing. Look at what Nehemiah says now to this in verse 17 and 18. He says, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, again, what is this evil you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? 
didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Can you hear the urgency in Nehemiah's voice? He is literally speaking to the people with this, I feel like this tone that maybe sometimes we have to speak to our kids in. You know, when our kids, when you tell them something over and over and over and you find yourself getting frustrated and you take this tone, he's literally like saying, this is what we just fixed. This is what we just, this is what got us in this state in the first place and now you're doing it again. What in the world? He's so frustrated. And so he attempts to reform it. And one of the things that he does in chapter 13 is he makes a new rule and he says, well, here's what's going to happen. To keep you guys from having all this trade and buying and selling coming in, before, right before Sabbath begins, we're shutting the city out. We're shutting the gates. We're locking the doors where nobody can get in and nobody can get out. We're not doing this buying, selling, and trading thing anymore. We're going to cut that off. You know, it's almost like, it, it, it almost feels like, you know, like if your, your kid who drives, like, stays out past curfew, and you say, I'm taking your keys away from you so you can't drive anymore. It almost feels like that's what Nehemiah is doing with the people. It's like, okay, well, y'all can't listen. We're going to lock it up. We're grounding you. <laughs> you, can't, you. You can't do this anymore. So we're going to lock the gates, and nobody can come in and out. But then what we see happen is that many of these merchants and, and buyers and sellers were coming in from outside the city. They weren't, they were coming in, they weren't Jews inside. They were coming in from the outside, and they were coming in to do business. So now you imagine they show up one day, and they're like, oh, we're, gonna, we're going into Jerusalem. We're going to make our money. And they show up, and the gate's locked, and they can't get in. So what they begin to do is just camp out outside. They evidently don't get the hint that Nehemiah is trying to send is, is you're, you're not welcome in here on the Sabbath because this day is not for that. But they begin to set up camp outside and, and wait and, 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 and kind of pressure to say, hey, open up, let us in. Look at how Nehemiah responds to this in verse 20 and 21. He says, once or twice, the merchants of those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside Jerusalem. And you may wonder, well, why does he say once or twice? This is why it's once or twice. Verse 21, but I warn them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. After that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Y'all, literally, what I picture is Nehemiah up on the wall over the gate, and these guys are camped out around the wall, and they're wanting to get in. And he's like, I don't know why y'all keep showing up because we're not opening the gate. Don't leave. Get out of here. And if you keep coming back, I will come down there and make you leave. This is literally what he says. Some of your translations may say, I will lay hands on you. It is translated that way. Very often, That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a threat of physical violence. In Nehemiah, I will come down there and put my hands on you and make you leave. Nehemiah is not just angry, but he threatens them physically. 
And at this point in the chapter, we begin to see something in Nehemiah that we've not seen before. Have we seen Nehemiah respond to sin like this? Not during his first time. And so something's happening to Nehemiah. I think as we're reading chapter 13, we have to pay attention to how he is establishing, how he is using his leadership and see that things seem to be going downhill. He does, he's beginning to not look like the noble leader that we saw at the beginning. So something is happening in Nehemiah's heart. And again, there's another prayer. Look at verse 22. This is Nehemiah's expression to the Lord. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. There's a prayer, there's a second time that he's prayed a prayer like this. And are you noticing the sentiment and the focus of his prayer? Now it doesn't seem as if he's praying on behalf of the people. He, he's talking to God about him. It seems that his focus is coming off of the people who are causing frustration in him. And he's beginning to, to take this loner mentality with the Lord, like, God, it's just you and me here. Don't forget me. Don't forget what I'm, I've been doing, please. So as we continue in the chapter, starting in verse 23, we see the third step backwards. And it's the chasing of lesser loves. This is number three. So they've neglected the house of worship. They've taken what God has said was holy, and they've made it normal like everything else. And now they're chasing after lesser loves. Look at verse 23 and 24. It says, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. Again, I want to make it clear. We've said this before already. But the breaking of God's law in this case is not an issue of race. This is not a, this is not a mandate from the Lord that he doesn't want them intermarrying with races because, because of race. This isn't a race issue. This is an idolatry issue. Okay? And there's a difference. God isn't telling the people, don't intermarry with these other races of people because he's racist, because God is not. He says, don't intermarry with these foreign peoples because with these foreign peoples come foreign gods. And when your relationships begin to be drawn toward these women, he's talking to the men and he says, as you're being drawn to these foreign women and you fall in love with them and you marry them, you're also, what I see is you're falling in love with their gods. You're falling in love with their idols. And so to keep that from happening, to make sure that the people were faithful, he says, don't do that. And again, Nehemiah has an extreme response when he comes in and he sees marriages with all of these foreign peoples and he's seeing the influence that those marriages, because let's just be honest, guys, what kind of influence does a wife have over a husband? 
A lot. A lot. And so he sees these relationships happening, these foreign gods being brought in. The men are beginning to give their attention and their worship. They begin to share what God says is only for me. And they're beginning to give it to these other gods, these lesser loves. And when I say lesser loves in those notes, I'm not talking about the women. I'm talking about the idols. Talking about the foreign gods. And he responds again in verse 25. Listen to how he responds to this when he sees it. I rebuked them, cursed them, look, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. Whoa. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Now, obviously what they're doing is wrong. Obviously what they're doing is breaking the law of God. But look at how Nehemiah is responding to it. He's literally just beating the snot out of them. He's so mad. He's so frustrated with them that the way he deals with them is beats them up and pulls their hair out. Y'all, I didn't make that up. That's not an interpretive thing. It's right there in black and white. Like, that's not me embellishing and making up like, oh, maybe this is what he did. He literally says, I beat them up and pulled out their hair. There is a rage, a fury in him. And it says he forced them to take an oath before God. Have you ever tried to force somebody to take an oath before God? How does that usually work out? Do they ever follow through? Like what motivation is there for somebody to fulfill an oath that they're forced to take? Well, you better come down front and give your life to Jesus this morning or that little bit of hair you got left on your head's coming out. You ain't going to leave here with hair on your head if you don't get down here and receive Jesus right now. That may look good for evangelism numbers. We had 100 people get saved this morning. It was awesome. Because we had somebody at the, at the, on the porch with clippers. And we're going to shave your head if you don't receive Jesus right now. Like, that's, that's crazy. But this is what he does. He, and listen, Nehemiah loves the Lord. He loves the Lord, and he loves the people. But he loves the Lord so much, his greatest desire is to see the people obey. And he's like, we just cleaned up this mess. I'm gone for a little while. I come back, and everything is, is, is a hot mess again. And he is mad, and he is frustrated. And we see the passion of Nehemiah's leadership begin to shift, don't we? He's always been a passionate leader, and we've seen it through here. He has stood firm. He has been, he has been patient. He has been resolute in his, in, in his governing the people and making sure that the, the task that was set before him was accomplished. Like, he's been this great leader, but he is, like, unraveling at this point. His leadership is becoming tainted, and his passion is expressing itself in a not-so-noble way now. And look at the very last verse of chapter 13. 
at the very end of verse 31, again, a third time he prays that same prayer, much shorter. Remember me, my God, with favor. The book of Nehemiah ends with Nehemiah basically saying to God, nobody else gets it, God. Nobody else gets it. These people, I can't deal with them. They're clueless. They don't even understand. But I do. I understand, God. Look at all the stuff I did. Look at how hard I worked. Look at the sacrifice I made coming from Persia to to here and what I gave up and the amount of junk that I took from people. God, I wanted this more than anything, but the people screwed it up. They messed it all up. And so at least, if you're going to bring judgment on your people, at least remember that I wasn't a part of it. It wasn't me, God. Seems like a pretty selfish leader. Instead of praying prayers that said we, 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 his prayers began to be me, me, me. And this can very easily happen. This happens in churches all the time. This is something that can very easily happen to people like me, people like our staff, pastors who passionately pour into their congregations to try to lead them in a direction. I've seen it happen, folks. To try to lead them in a certain direction, and they are literally... Like we, we read that the verses about Jesus saying that he's the shepherd and we're the sheep, and maybe as a leader like Nehemiah, he's going, you're, you're darn right, God, they are sheep because they're dumb. They don't, they don't do anything that I tell them to do. And, and they said they were going to do it, and then I left and turned my back for a little while and came back, and they're just they're out of control. And something can happen in the heart of a leader when that begins to happen. And we have to, we have to humble ourselves before the Lord on a regular basis to make sure that that doesn't creep into our hearts. Because the leadership of a pastor or a staff person or anybody who's in charge of any kind of ministry can become so frustrated that, that their focus will begin to turn away from the people they're called to minister to and it will become very inward focused. And so any of us that are in any kind of leadership position, we have to be very careful not to let that happen. So think about how our lives reflect what we've read in this chapter. Number one was that they neglected the house of God. We neglect the house of God at times. Not just when we don't fulfill our commitment. You may see that one and go, oh, well, that's talking about when I don't come to church or when I don't tithe or when I don't do those things. Yeah, it does. But I think for us as a New Testament church, it, it, it's deeper than that. We don't just neglect God's house when we don't fulfill our commitments to church. It's when we neglect each other. Because what does Scripture say about who the church is? It's us. We are the house of God. We are the church. We are his bride. And so when I see in the Old Testament people neglecting the house of God, 
I see it still today, but not just in the fact that people don't come to church or they're not supportive or they're not involved, any of those things, only come to church on Easter and, thank, and, and Christmas. Like, yes, people neglect the house of God that way, but you can be here every single week and still neglect the house of God because you neglect people. You don't pay attention. You're too busy storing up your own stuff in these rooms that are meant to be investments in other people. That's what these rooms were supposed to be, the people investing in the lives of the Levites and the priests, and they weren't doing it because something else had moved into that space. And we have so many things going on in our our life, I can allow something else to move into the space that is supposed to be reserved for you. And when that starts to happen, I'm going to neglect you. And if that happens to you, you're going to neglect me, and you're going to neglect everybody. We are the house of God. Normalizing what is holy. Basically, they were taking the Sabbath and turned it into every other day. We do that. We take Sunday, which is the day that we have set aside as the Sabbath for worship, for rest. And even if we come to church, we'll still make the rest of the day as normal as possible, right? We'll work. We'll do whatever we got to do. Maybe we didn't get it done during the week. And we're like, oh, I got to catch up on it sometime, so I'm going to do this. Like, what would, I wonder sometimes what would happen if even myself, if I genuinely gave the Sabbath the attention that God intended for me to give it. How much less stressful would my life be? How much more peace would I experience in my life? But it's bigger than that for us. I think normalizing what is holy also means when we take anything that God has set apart, not just a day, and he said, this is holy, this is set apart for me, and we normalize it and make it like everything else. When we make marriage just another contract, we're normalizing what is holy. When we, when we take sexual relationships and they become just another recreational activity, we are normalizing what God has said is holy. And when we take the lives of people and make them disposable, and let me say this, the lives of people not just living inside the womb, but the lives of people living outside the womb. When we make the lives of people disposable in the womb and out of the womb, we are taking what God has said is holy and we're making it disposable like everything else. It's not just a Sunday thing. And then chasing lesser loves. How many idols creep their way into our lives? How many other things that buy for our attention and our affection creep into our lives and folks let me tell you all of the great things in the world that God has blessed us with every one of those things can become idols in our life we make idols out of people we make idols out of wealth we make idols out of celebrities out of clothes out of fashion out of technology out of entertainment out of social media take anything that we could use and say that this is a good gift from God, 
when have we not taken a good gift from God and turned it into an idol at some point? Because we've loved something lesser. How many times have I loved my stuff more than I've loved God? How many times have I expressed that to the world? Sometimes people know which college football team we love before they knew what Savior we love. It's easier to tell. But all of those things are lesser. Everything is lesser than Jesus. And don't these all three seem to be things that we find ourselves in a cycle? That we will be convicted. The Spirit will bring conviction and instruction. We'll realize how we're messing up. We'll confess it to God. We'll make a new commitment to say we're not going to do that anymore. And then how long does it take us to go right back to doing it again? Folks, we are the people of Judah. We are the people who have the instruction of God clearly in front of us. We know what his desire is for us. We know what his heart is for us. And we desire to obey him, but we can't make it last. So what a great ending to the book of Nehemiah, right? It's kind of depressing. The story of Nehemiah ends in failure. If, if God had just ended it with chapter 12, everything would have been great, right? If we had stopped at the end of 12, everything, we would feel good about it. But chapter 13 is there. What Nehemiah set out to do didn't last. It was successful, but it was only successful for a very short time. And then it went right back to the way it was before. And you say, Eric, what's the point in that? You know that chronologically, as far as the chronological narrative for the people of God, this is, this is like one of the last narratives we see, historical narratives that we see in the Old Testament chronologically before Jesus shows up. Like this is the state of the people. So you say, why does it end this way? Why in the world God must not be a great novel writer? Because chapter 13 stinks. Why is chapter 13 there? We have to ask ourselves that question. We can't just go, wow, it would have been really great. At the end of 12, I'll just stop reading at 12 and let's forget chapter 13. We can't do that. It's there. It's there for a reason. So why is it? Why would it end with a people who made great commitments and they only failed? Why would it end with an effective godly leader who loses some of his godly character when frustration with the people gets the best of him? And why would it end with a faithful God still pursuing a fickle and unfaithful people who can't seem to get it? I want to take you back. I want us to circle around to, to 18 weeks, longer than 18 weeks ago when we first started about talking about this chapter. And there was one big idea that I told you was a string that went through this entire story. And it's this. 
We do all we can while depending on God to do what only he can. If you haven't figured it out already, this is what I want you to see. What does all we can do ultimately amount to? According to the book of Nehemiah, all that we can do, all of the effort, all of the dedication, all of the passion that we pour into everything that we can do, what does it ultimately end in? Failure. It ultimately ends in failure. And it, and it ends in failure not just for the people of Judah, but also for Nehemiah. What Nehemiah tried to do didn't last. The commitments of the people didn't last. Everything we'll ever be able to do on our own ultimately will amount to nothing. That's why we need the gospel. Nehemiah, I believe, is meant to lead us to our need and the ultimate idea that we desperately need the gospel because the gospel is what only he can do. The cross is only what he can do. Salvation by grace through faith is only what he can do. Regenerating us, making something that was old and bringing it from death to life and the old passing away and all of the new has come. All we can do will never get there. It will always fail. Does it mean we don't strive to be all we can be? No, of course we do. But if we trust in our own effort, it's going to fail. It's always going to fail. And I think Nehemiah's story, if we stopped at chapter 12, we would be tempted to think that it was because of Nehemiah and his great leadership that everything ended happily ever after. And it was not because of that. It was not because of Nehemiah. What Nehemiah did ultimately failed. What the people tried to do ultimately failed. We need the gospel. We need salvation. And I think Nehemiah's story gives us great principles for how we're to grow in our faith. That doesn't mean take all of the principles that we've learned from Nehemiah and the people all through these 13 chapters and scrap them and say, oh, well, they're no good anymore. Of course they are but they are only good in the power of the Holy Spirit in a regenerated life. Because guess what? After you're saved, you're still going to make efforts that are going to fail. You're still going to mess up. You, we've talked about it. We do it on a regular basis. That's why we need the gospel, because all we can do will never get us there. It's only him. It's only salvation. It's only Jesus that gets us there. So what is the book of Nehemiah all about? We desperately need Jesus. 